This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. And welcome to another episode of The Resilient Life. Make sure that you like and subscribe to our podcast so you can get all of our content as soon as it hits. I am so excited today for our guest. Brian Shantosh, more affectionately known as Tosh, is here with us today. And I'm going to give a little background before I welcome him. Brian Shantosh is a Navy Cross recipient. Due to his actions on the March of Baghdad in March 2003 with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, he then deployed again as the leader for Dark Horse Marines in the 2nd Battle of Fallujah, known as Operation Phantom Fury in November 2004. He retired after 21 years in the Marine Corps with numerous awards and honors, including two Bronze Stars with Valor. But since then, Tosh has really carved a name for himself as a trainer and leader in many different realms. Throughout leadership training at Crooked Butterfly Ranch and his Crooked Butterfly podcast, and through his work bringing groups of veterans together, and he's even made a name for himself in the CrossFit world and in the world of ultra racing. Amongst other things, I'd like to welcome to the show, Tosh. How are you? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Yes, as well. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here. So, as I was telling you before we started, I've been doing a lot of research on you. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, and so I've got a ton of different notes, and I I didn't really know which way this conversation was going to go. So I, I I have different pieces, and I hope we can dive into everything. But we'll see where we get. But first, I want to start with our connection. We first met several years ago when you came to speak at a Travis Manion Foundation uh, charity golf tournament in California. And I flew out there and, you know, I, I just kept hearing, oh, there's this legendary Marine Tosh and he's going to be the guest speaker. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, Jimmy Letchford, um, had uh, brought you uh, to us to serve as our, our guest of honor that night. And I don't remember a lot about what you said specifically, but I'll never forget how you opened. Well, you first opened with Jimmy told me I had 30 minutes to speak, but now I'm being told I only have seven. So I have no idea where I'm going to go with this. But then you went on to say something that I thought was so poignant, and it really spoke to the shared kinship of the military community in general. And you said, I didn't know Travis Mannion, but I know Travis Mannion. I didn't serve with Travis Mannion, but I served with Travis Mannion. And you talked about that kinship and that camaraderie and the, the brother and sisterhood that you share when you serve side by side in uniform. Can you share a little bit more about that and, and what you meant when you spoke those words? Yeah, for sure. That was a long time ago. Um, man, it must have been 10 years ago, right? Yeah. And um I'm so, so fortunate that we started that journey together then, uh, thanks to Jimmy and a, and a handful of others. But, uh, you know, there's, I'm, 
obviously I'm biased with the Marine Corps, but I don't think it's exceptional um, in regards to the other services, but, you know, military service and the shared kinship. And I think it just starts with um, character building. And and what's interesting is that's very, very parallel to what the Travis Manion Foundation is all about, too, is character building. But when you're surrounded by individuals, men and women, in for the cause of service, regardless of the the scale of zero to 10 on intensity of service. Um, you develop certain traits and characteristics in a familiarity, uh, relationships, trust, and you might not have the same outside look, but inside in your heart and your soul, your, your, your internal, your ethos, you all share these same things in common. And it's, it's no, when I come across a Marine, it doesn't matter what era they served in, it's like, oh, I was in Marine Corps, there's an instant bond, you know, it's simultaneous like raw or Semper Fi, and it means something very deep and very special. And then when you layer on top of that, um, maybe some of the, the excitement of combat service and the things and the, the trials, the tribulations, the intensities, the, um, the demands, the hardships uh, that, that service and combat require and you, you connect with people and you hear stories like it's even a step higher. And so what I meant was I never had met Travis, but I've read a lot about him. I've heard a lot of amazing people that I hold in very high regard, hold Travis in exceptional regard. And it's just like, yeah, Hey, I know, I know you because everything that is being communicated about you, I have an intimate relationship with another Marine or another service member that, that, I've served with that is exactly reminiscent of you. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that, do you think that, that that sort of kinship exists outside of the military? Like, is there any other groups that you can think of that, that have that same sort of bond? I do. I I, I do not think it's unique to military service. Um, just the CrossFit community alone, you know, when, you know, you're, you're going on the road and somebody CrossFits, right? And whether you like CrossFit or not doesn't matter, but the example holds true. Whether you're a boy scout or a girl scout, you know, that it's all about a collection of a community that has shared common values and they create opportunities to have experiences with each other and that that bond and that kinship can grow. And so I do think it's it's resident, the ultra running community, the ultra endurance communities. I mean, you can pick it out. I'm assuming, you know, knitting clubs, they can all they can all have this um, in their own special way. And I don't want to say that one's better or worse than the other. They're all just a little different. But if you pour yourself into something greater than yourself with earnest and honesty and authenticity, and you find yourself around other people that are doing the same, whatever that endeavor is, this this spirit of kinship will grow. And it's really, it's uh, predicated on common courtesy, decency, and respect. Yeah, absolutely. So you brought up something that I have down. You said it, it, it can exist in the world of ultra marathoning. And I actually was literally on Instagram right before we popped on. And I had all these things I wanted to talk to you about, all these crazy things you did. And then I see another thing that you just finished. Was it a hundred mile ultra marathon? Is that correct? Yes, I yes it is. We just finished that yesterday. So yesterday, okay. So how are your legs feeling today? You're tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've done some really crazy stuff to challenge yourself, both mentally and physically. And I want to hear more about all of that. And and one of the things I want to talk to you about is the Arrowhead Winter Ultra Marathon. It's 135 miles in the dead of winter in Minnesota. And mm-hmm. the first time you did that. You didn't finish. I quit. You quit. So, so walk us through that story. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a significant moment for me. Um, there's a lot of backdrop to that. I had um, experienced failure, personal failure at a expedition in Sweden. I was a part of a four-person team and I was very cavalier um, about going into that race regards to training, preparation, the equipment. I was riding a high. I was very, very, I wouldn't say I was arrogant, but I was very, very overconfident, um, accomplished. I hadn't experienced failure before, um, especially in that sort of field of endeavor. And um, I jeopardized, I jeopardized the lives of my team. Um, Like, and I'm not saying that loosely, right? Like I literally was dying as I was going hypothermic in a glacial lake that we were swimming across. And um, it was due to lack of preparation. I didn't have the appropriate gear or the wetsuit that I was required to have. Um, And I put the lives of three other individuals in jeopardy. And um, it crushed me because here I did something that I, um, my whole career, I prided myself in not doing and holding other people to impeccable standards not to do. And I was embarrassed uh, that I did it myself. And, um, so I needed to soul search. So I went to the Arrowhead 135, a couple, um, midshipmen at the Naval Academy had introduced me to the event and asked if I was chaperone. And I was like, Hey, this is a, an awesome opportunity for me to sort through some baggage that I have due to that event, that monster Sweden event. And, um, I went up there and again, uh, I didn't necessarily, uh, take the race for granted or not respect the race. It was cold, you know, temps reaching into the negative 20s, start line sub-zero, 135 miles. You're pulling your sled across snowpack ice, um, uh, an aggressive cutoff time of 60 hours to finish. But um, I wanted to do because it's a solo event. I don't, you don't, you're not able to draw personal strength off of giving to others. And I found that that's really where I excel is gaining personal strength by giving to other people. And, um, I went out there and I just quit. I hit mile 83 or 84. I sat down on my sled. I was at a, the trail crossroading a, a hardball road. And I just sat there and in my head, I, I had let myself down. I just quit. I said, ah, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not enjoying it. I don't like being alone. This is stupid. And, um, I remember this Todd drove up in his, uh, snowplow and got out and said, Hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Just, I'm done. I quit. He's like, what are you talking about? You're great. You know, you, you you're, you're lucid. You're look good. You're not like, why don't you just pull up your sleeping bag and take a nap and you'll be better and get back on the course. You know, you're over halfway done. I was like, nah, man, I'm just done. I quit. And I got in his truck and I was just overwhelmed again with embarrassment, shame. Like what's wrong with me? Like I'm in this hole and I just dug myself even deeper. I've never quit before. So not only did I fail the year before, now I failed again, but this time it was due to just personal motivation and just quitting a weakness. And, um, I struggled or struggled for another year, went, went into a little mild depression and retreated from friends and family. And just, it was hard. It was really hard. But uh, that Arrowhead 135 is a uh, tough, tough race. So when do you decide to go back and say, all right, I'm going to try and tackle this again, which I actually think is harder than going into it blind because you now know, like, you know, that point of where you quit, you know, that point of where you stopped, you know, that you weren't necessarily enjoying it. What makes you decide to say, all right, I'm going to give this another go. Yeah. So it was a 24 hour drive from Annapolis to um, International Falls. And I drove that solo there. So I had a 24 hour drive solo alone back to Annapolis with Naval Academy, friends, family, all like knowing that I had quit, you know, I didn't finish. And I, I drove, I don't even think I put music on in the car and it was just mind. And I just drove and thinking, I was like, Hey, I got to go back and do this again. 
um, I need to do this again. I've got something to prove. And I was sorting through like, hey, I've got something to prove to myself instead of others. I was using proving to something to others as a motivation to succeed and excel or accomplish things. And I found that that is a a necessary motivation maybe, but but also superficial, you know, um, doing something for yourself. I was wrestling through was more powerful. So I got back home and um, I pouted for a while. Uh, It affected my relationship for sure. It affected my work. But um, then I just dug in and I started training. I said, okay, hey, I have a little bit of reference of what the physical demands of the course will be. I started training for that a little bit. I was known as the weird dude that would uh, have a waist with a tire strapped to it and be walking the streets of Annapolis from home to the Naval Academy every day. Um, we would be sitting in restaurants and be like, hey, you're the guy that has the tire around his waist. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, that's me. What are you doing? I'm like, um, I've got some demons to settle. But uh, so I trained really hard. Uh, not really hard, but I trained and I was preparing to head for what I would face. And I went back the next year to quit again. <laughs> and uh, Oh, so you quit the second time, time though, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't. Okay. All right. I didn't know that. All right. Yeah, terrible. I uh, went there. uh, I was crushing the course. I was, we we had a massive snowstorm. I was on foot. Everybody that was doing the bike discipline had to pull off because it was the snow. I think it was snowed like 18 inches overnight. It was crazy. Um, Really, really wet. Anybody knows that the the cold, cold weather and wetness don't don't get along with each other. and uh, I think I was at the halfway point in fourth place, feeling feeling great, soaking wet, feet frozen, whatever, but just in a great place. And uh, Nicole actually came with me to the race that time and was at the halfway point. And, um, you know, it was kind of like a to spirit you on thing. And I was like, hey, man, you know what? Like, I just realized that the solo stuff, I would rather be doing this with my dog or with you or find other events. I don't feel like I need to enter a race to do something special. I can seek out adventure on my own. and experience it and share with others. I'm a person that likes to share experiences with, not just endure them solo. And um, I think I'm good, man. Like, why don't we just pack up? I'll go check out. We'll drive to the finish line. We'll hang out at the casino because the finish line's at a casino and we'll, we'll, we'll eat good. We'll have a little like couple days of dating. We'll support the finish line and other racers coming in. I'm, I'm good, man. I've, I really solved some demons like that was in my head, you know, and, and I, I'm fixed. I'm good. I accomplished what I came out here for. So, you sure? Are you really sure you want to do that? I'm like, I'm, I've never been more positive about anything. This is great. I feel great. I checked out of the race. I got in the car and 10 minutes later, I was worse off than I was the year before. I realized that uh, my mind had tricked me into thinking that I had done something that I wanted to do and fooled me into thinking that I was being strong in the decision that I was making, yet I was actually week. And I allowed myself to reset some goalposts, redefine success based off of my current mood or something like that, instead of tying myself back into original objectives or an original mission statement um, goal. And I just, I got, I succumbed to some sort of mood and emotion in the moment. And I realized that, and I was destroyed. I was like, I cannot believe I just did that. So three years in a row um, of failure of a different sort of flavor, but all really just personal failure. And um, it was hard. It was really hard. It took a couple of years for me to go back again the third time and finally finish. <laughs> so you quit the first time, you go back the following year, you quit 
thinking you're in a better place the second time, but realizing you're actually in a worse place. And then you come back a few years later and you finally complete it. Yeah. And is it like... I had had to do it again the fourth time to prove that it wasn't just a fluke. Okay, there you go. But but is it like that third time when you finish it, is it is it a breakthrough for you mentally that you feel like, okay, I can push past those limitations that I saw the the past two years? Yeah, you know, whether it's a breakthrough, I want to sort through the right word, maybe. Um, I had an awareness for a trigger. And not the fall trap then, right, to do something because I had an experience. So I have an experience, you fail, you, you have it. You can't forget it. You have to recognize what that sort of feels like or looks like, tastes like. And then I don't know that I had another experience with another failure and another one. So I have those things, but you can't forget those. But it, what it did was it created uh, something that I could look for because I almost fell trapped to it a third time. I was sitting at the halfway point and I had 26 minutes left to leave the halfway point before I would have been disqualified. And I almost felt trapped. And my buddy, Chris Smith was there and he was just kind of watching me. We're at the checkpoint and there was a seven or eight people that had quit the course that were sitting there waiting to get shuttled home. And there are a whole bunch of chatter and it's in your head. They're saying, oh yeah, the course is really tough this year. It's just going to get worse on the second half and the temperatures are dropping and oh, you know, this wasn't the year if it's going to be worse. And so there's all this little chatter of all these other people that had quit. And then there's on the bench, there's three in, three individuals sitting on the bench trying to decide whether they were going to go back out or not. And they're listening to this chatter and they're starting to feed it. And I'm just sitting here and um, Chris, my buddy, who actually went to the race with me that year to, to provide some support, he just let me sit there and he's watching me. He knows me very, very well and just watching. And um, my head's listening to this chatter, but I was able to recognize that that chatter that was coming in from the outside was actually the same chatter that was in my head in the previous years. And the chatter on the bench was the same chatter that I had done. And then I remembered, and I was trying to remember the future that said, if I bought into that same chatter, I'm going to have then the same feelings that I had previously. So let's not do the same mistake, you know, lessons learned. And really quick pause. There was a lady on a course. um, It was about three miles out from the halfway point. And I passed her. Well, I didn't pass her. I caught up to her because I was really pressed for time to hit the halfway point due to circumstances. And, um, but I'll never pass somebody in the course. Um, it's just my philosophy. You just never pass anybody out without checking in on them. Hey, how you doing? You okay? You know, never pass up the opportunity to make a new friend or, or lend a hand. And she didn't speak very much English at all. And she was really, really distraught to the point where it's like, okay, hey, I have to surrender my goals in order to stay with this woman because she's not in a good place. We have a, a very aggressive traverse here for the next three miles to get to. We have to go across the frozen lake. Temperatures drop 15 more degrees. And um, from what I was gathering from her, she didn't, hadn't had any water and she had a sled that was, it looks like she had a dozen dead bodies in her sled. It was huge, you know, where my sled's weighing 23 pounds, her sled must be 70 pounds. And she's, and I'm just like, hey, like this lady needs help. And in the, also in my mind, I'm coming here to finish and like, oh man, like what is going on here? You know, but it's like, hey, just stop and help her. And um, piecing things together, she was worried about whether there was going to be water at the halfway point because we were so close to the cutoff at the halfway point, if anybody was even going to be there to give her water, because she hasn't had water for hours. And I was just like, and somehow it was like, hey, what can I do? She's like, I would love a soda or something, Coca-Cola. And I was like, and then I remembered that I, I keep a little special treat with me when I go on these things to either surprise myself with or give to somebody else. And I remembered I had uh, 
cherry Pepsi in the front of my sled. And I was like, Hey, keep going, go, go, go. And I stopped. She's like, no, go. And I'm like, no, go, go, go. And I opened it up and I got the little cherry Pepsi out. And I run ran back up there to give it to her. And I gave it to her and her face just became a glow. And she starts guzzling that. Oh, and I said, okay, you have to go quick. Um, the time we only got like 35 minutes to go. We've got a little over, little under three miles to go. Like we've got to go. Yeah. And, um, she, uh, I actually, I said, Hey, give me that. And I took a quick sip because I needed a quick sip. And then I gave it to her and said, it's yours. You keep it. And she's like, Oh no, you take it. I was like, go. And so then I laughed her and I ran and I got to the checkpoint. So anyways, now back to the story where we're sitting at the table and all this chatter going on. This lady walks in to the checkpoint with two minutes left. And all she said was water. You have water. And everybody's like the sink, you know, right there. She goes over to the sink. She fills up her water bottles. She goes back to the door. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm checking out. She gets out on the course and she starts going to finish the race. And when she did that, it was like she gave me a gift, you know. And um, I just looked at Chris and I said, you know, you know what's about to happen. And he just started smiling. I said, Tosh is checking out. And I just ran outside, got my stuff and finished the course. Um, another 70 miles to go. But uh, it was it was interesting how that all worked out. So I gave a lot of credit to her for spiriting me through a moment when I was it was very tedious of what what, what I was going to choose to do. Yeah. And just to see her walk in like that. I had, I had the credit to her. Yeah. I had a moment like that when I, the first time I ran the Marine Corps marathon, I was at the, the, the bridge at mile 19. And like, I had only trained to in my head mentally, I had only trained to get to that bridge. Right. And so I get there and all throughout my training, I'm like, once I get there, you know, I got like seven miles left. I'm fine. Well, once you get there and there's seven miles left in the real, race, I'm like dying. And so I'm just like mentally breaking down. I'm crying. I mean, I I look like a hot mess and I'll never forget. There was a woman or girl, she was probably about my age and she ran in front of me and I'm like totally having a pity party for myself. Like my brother died. He's going to be so proud that I just got this far, you know, like, and, and then I see this woman run by me and she's wearing a shirt and it says running for my brother, you know, KIA and it has his dates and it says, and my husband and it has his KIA dates. And it was for me, it was that moment where I was like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. It was like, she was sent to me and I could have gone in a completely different direction had I not seen her run by me. And so I totally get those signs when you're out on the courses and like really physically demanding events, like that woman came to you for a reason like that, Mm -hmm. that was supposed to happen. And so you finish that race, you go back, you do it again for a fourth time just to say, Hey, that wasn't a fluke. And then Mm -hmm. I'm looking and then I see, and and I don't have the, the timeline on this, but then I see you do something called locked and loaded. And this was, well, I don't want to say this was the most interesting, the the other one I'll get to, but locked and loaded, you're in a shed for 24 hours. Is that correct? Yes, it is. On a treadmill. Mm-hmm. And do, do you have any concept of time? None, none. And you're by uh, yourself. Sensory, sensory deprivation challenge. I want to pause the real quick, Ryan, and just go back to one more, one thing back yeah. there about, um, with that lady. And I, and I want to, 
it's, it's interesting because I've thought about this for years and it's, um, we wait for the gods to give us signs or we wait for the world to, to give us opportunity or we wait for, for the Lord or whatever your belief system is, is to give us things. And that's a very passive and receptive way to look about it. Um, and, and I, I pride myself on, on keeping myself in check and taking only the credit that credit is due. But had I have not stopped and engaged with that woman when I did, I, I don't know if the gift would have been given in return. And I'm not the kind of guy that says, hey, you always have to give in an expectation of receipt. But um, I think it's a call to action for people to to think a certain way because you never know when it's going to when it's gonna come back in return, whether it's directly to you or to a loved one, you know. And there's been too many times in my life where I've, I've decided to take an active step an active lifestyle towards giving to others kindness, um, courtesy, respect, you know, and go, go out of my way and make it a habit to, to give to others. And it's been too many times in my life that I've seen that that has been paid back in kind, whether in this case directly to myself, but in many, many other cases to somebody else that I love or care about or know. And it comes back to you two years later and it's like, oh, I know that guy. And he's like, yeah, he told me that he knew you or we put two and two together and you did this for him. And, and so, I mean, I really think like the, uh, there's a message there that I, I hold to to this day for myself. And it's, it's like, hey, never pass up the opportunity to make a new friend. I mean, it happened to me in, in Sweden. It happened to me in Patagonia. It's happened to me on a race course. It's happened to me just in, in regular life that if you go out of your way sometimes to give somebody just a, a smile or a thank you or a handshake, um, that that can change somebody's life, you know, um, and, and eventually maybe it comes back to you, you know, in the long run. What's the, like, uh, I forgot what that little spirit show was that, that did it, but it's like paying it forward, you know, so not to, not to take us off the locked and loaded event, but I just feel because that's something that I hold and I, that memory of that Arrowhead event and finishing it there, that exchange of gifts between the two of us. And um, I actually saw her on the fourth year and gave her a giant, giant hug. And um, she remembered exactly who I was and to be able to say thank you to her for that. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had ever... I'm sorry for digressing. No, that's okay. I I was wondering if you had ever seen her again. And, and, And I'm sure, you know, like you said, I'm sure she's on the other side of the world sharing the story of how she was gonna barely going to make it to the checkpoint and some random guy shows up and pulls out a cherry Coke, you know, I mean, that's, that was her experience of it. So, um, I love that. And it, and it's, and it's so very true. Um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about locked and loaded a little bit. So it's a, a sensory deprivation exercise. You're in a shed for 24 hours on a treadmill. This is quite possibly like my worst fear. I could not even imagine doing that for one hour. I'm going to be honest with you and to have no concept of time. And when you talk about, I'm very much like you when it comes to an experience, I I don't want to do it by myself. I'm always about sharing it with someone else. And I'm always looking for people to come together with me. You know, I'm the one that says like, Hey, let's do this. And I'm running to my friends and saying, who's in, you know, let's do it. Um, so I totally get that. And so this idea of, you know, less about the sleep deprivation or the, what you're doing physically, like the 24 hours of solitude is mind boggling to me. So walk me through what that experience was like. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, I swore after the Arrowhead when the fourth time I did it that I was done doing solo stuff. It just wasn't exciting to me. And it was a couple years 
<clears throat> after that, that I was presented with an opportunity to be a mentor for two Canadians that were creating this unique challenge. And I obviously, I said, yeah, of course I'll mentor them. They, want, they wanted to bring me on for the um, mental toughness mindset piece. And, um, you know, they had nutritionists and running coaches and, and, and whatnot as well. And then uh, was literally half an hour after I accepted that, I texted uh, Jeff Vernon back. and was like, hey, dude, I want to do this. It just sounds exciting. And it's something that I don't want to do. And I've been skirting with all my group and team adventures that, hey, I need to do this. This is quite possibly going to be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, you know. Um, and I think that's saying a lot, you know, with, with my background and sure. things that I've done. Yeah. So they, they, obviously they said yes. And we, we pulled it up onto the world stage instead of just um, small backyard stage um, with uh, the generosity of Joe DeSena and Spartan. And um, it was designed, you go in a, your own little sh- um, private shipping container on a non-motorized treadmill. And we were going to remove all, all measurement devices and analytics and feedback and artificial motivation from the scenario. So there's no monitor. You're not allowed a iPod. You're not allowed a phone, a watch, heart rate monitor, nothing. It's total darkness. And you go in there and who can go the farthest on this treadmill in 24 hours. Um, so that was the design to remove all that artificial stimulation and, and sensory measurement devices. The, um, the, the, the purpose was to help shed light and possibly new thoughts on um, mental health and psychological wellness type things, especially in a struggle for um, suicide. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're experiencing some stuff here and it's, and it's very, very similar, right? Like you feel alone, isolated in the dark. You can't make rhyme or reason of your surroundings, but you're still expected. The demands and the pressure of performance are still expected upon you. And um, that was the event and it was exciting. It's hard. And what are you thinking as you're walking into that shed? Are you trying to, because for me, I'd be trying to calculate how I could figure out how long I've been in there without having anything to know how long I've been in there. Like, do you literally, how quickly do you lose concept of time? Immediately. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is you use the word that, that, that is the trap. I was very, very fortunate to have dissected this. Um, a solution to, to solving this problem, drawing from experiences and drawing from, you know, piecing different things that I've done together into one to recreate a new solution. Um, I believe in that Malcolm Gladwell slicing theory. And, um, and I tried to mentor what would be three other guys because Isaiah Vidal got coerced by Joe at the last minute to jump in the container. He was going to buy him a car if he could beat me. And um, so Isaiah Spartan champ said, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to get a new car. And, um, but you said the word calculate and your desire to calculate when we're exactly designing the system to deny you the ability to calculate, there's an incongruency there. And so your, your method to be successful is already flawed and doomed for failure. So I failed before I even got in. I, I failed before I've even stepped in the container. But that's how, but that's how everybody was thinking. Yeah. I was like, hey, we designed this so that you couldn't calculate anything. And we know that the human mind works by trying to create frames of reference so that it can make meaning for where we're at, right? And we're putting you in this situation to exactly deny you that. So the fact that you're trying to resource that as a, a, a tool to, to succeed, you're setting yourself up for failure, you know? Um, and there was a couple other things too, but um, that was it. I, I had 
figured that out. I tried to communicate it to the others. Um, but I have experience and maybe it's just the way that I work. I was able to deny myself. And I was also able to create triggers that said when I was in there, when I, when I would naturally un, unwittingly try to start calculating or try to start thinking along an analytical sense. And I would be able to say, whoa, 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 stop. You have to put that away and you have to focus on these other things, you know, and, and I was able to hold on to that until they opened up the door, which was wonderful. And when they open up that door, do you, I mean, again, you, you lose context of time immediately when they open up that door. It's just a total surprise. Like you really, at that point have no idea when it's coming. I would imagine. Right now we weren't perfect um, because it was, they decided to put the Conex boxes near the finish line of the actual Spartan world championship race. And so at a certain time, when everything started going, you could hear a little bit of noise in the music when they were getting ready to start the Spartan race. And then the crowd started gathering when it was time to unveil us from the boxes. So you knew like it was getting uh, close. Yeah, it was getting close. So it wasn't a total bust like the last three hours, but I found the last three hours to be hardest because you start to hear the music and then start to try to make it out. You can't hear anything, but there's commotion. So you're like, oh, the race must be starting. Yeah. I must only have a little bit more to go. I must only have a half hour to go. I could count to 60, you know, 30 times or something. And, and then your mind starts to do that calculation. But in reality, afterwards, it was um, they started the music and everything three and a half hours before we were let out of the container. And um, so it was like you were already screwing yourself up, you know, and, but it's hard. It was really, really hard not to, once they gave you a tiny little piece of feedback, and, but it was misinformation by the way you were extrapolating it and assimilating it in your head, you know? Yeah. Now, do, are you on the treadmill the whole 24 hours? Either walk, I mean, do you, do you take any time to rest? Do you take, are you taking? I didn't. You didn't. You just were on, I didn't. just at different paces on this treadmill the whole time. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of um, 24 hours of running. My treadmill was moving for 23 hours and 40 minutes um, out of that 24 hours. And I knew I went into the box to do one thing. There was one mission to run. So I decided to not take anything inside of the box. It was a temptation to get me to do anything other than what I was supposed to do. I didn't take in a sleeping bag. I didn't take in creature comforts. I didn't take in. And I just, I just told myself, hey, your job is to run until they tell you you're done. That's your only job. And um, obviously we have to deal with a little bit of nutrition and you have to deal with, you know, using the bathroom. And, uh, but those were the only things that would get me to stop for a very, very small slice of time. And um, to get right back onto doing what I was supposed to be doing and insulating myself from distractions and temptation to not do what I was supposed to do. Wow. I think that's a great skill for people to recognize in their life. Hey, I'm getting ready to go do something. And we, we focus on all the positive things we can add to the plate to pull us in that direction um, to accomplish our goal. But the other part of the strategic planning and analysis is to look at what things are potential traps or magnets or distractions that are going to, to lead us away from our goal. And then creating roadblocks or barriers or something to keep us from going down those inevitable paths. And I think that's all really an essential part both of those two different sides of the coin in, in directing yourself towards accomplishment or success or whatever it is that you endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love everything you're saying, but I, I want to, I want to be realistic for, you know, the mere mortals that like 
there's no way they're ever going to get in a shipping container for 24 hours. Like, how do you start that process? Right. Everything you're talking about, challenging yourself, pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone, beyond your barriers. Like, how does Joe Schmo from off the street who's listening to you right now and says, that's how I want to start living my life. Like, that's that's the type of person I want to be. Like, how, how do you begin that process? You start at the beginning. And um, and I don't mean that to be funny, um, because I, th- I think we're starting to be wired and acculturated and confused through our daily lives, through instant gratification, um, instant feedback. Uh, we want big lottery tickets. You know, we want to win big. We want to, everything's big, big, big. Everything's now, now, now. And, and I feel that we're, we're constantly being forced to go that direction. I find that that's me. Like, why do I want to go catch a six inch fish when I can go over there and catch a 12 inch fish, you know? And it's like, Hey, well, let's start at the beginning. And you don't get to running 100 miles or 200 miles or 500 miles by just saying, oh, I'm just going to start there. Let's go back and take time and be patient and enjoy the process. And everybody's looking for the life hacks or the cheat codes to get farther and faster than their contemporaries on their left and their right. And, and, I, and I think in trying to do that, you're cheating yourself out of the essential lessons and experiences that you're going to learn that are going to apply to your favor when you are finding yourself in exceptional hardship. We all like to do the complex and the sexy things first, right? Like when we're in the Marine Corps, you know, the men used to always love to do the fancy, fancy tactics. And it's like, hey, well, why? None of those fancy tactics are going to work if you're not like brilliant at the fundamentals, at the basics. Well, they're boring. You know, the basics, the simple things, the stuff that, oh, that's so easy. I don't even have to practice that because when they, they come at me, I'll just be able to do that. If you ever find yourself thinking along those lines, that's the exact reason why you should be concentrating on the simple things so that they're so automatic that they don't come into play when you find yourself an exceptional experience because the, the complex and the sexy things are exceptionally hard in exceptional circumstances. And so you, you really revert back to the simple basics, you know, the blocking and the tackling. And um, for people that want to get, this isn't, it's not like I went into that, that box or did the Arrowhead 135 as a starting event, you know, Marine Corps PFT would probably be my starting event. And that was on my sliding scale, hard. You know, that was at the far right, like a three mile run, some pull-ups and some sit-ups trying to get a perfect score. And then you grow from that, you know, and then you say, oh, I'm going to do a half marathon. Oh, I'm going to do a triathlon. Oh, I'm going to go do this. And you, you, you experience some hardship and some struggle. You know, you don't get to, you don't get to these big things just by jumping headlong into them. You just build it over time, you know, and it's taken me 25 years, 30 years. And I wouldn't shortcut that process in a, for anything, because all the lessons and the struggles and the, and the things that I've learned along the way, that's a little redundant, right? The lessons and the things I've learned, but um, all add value. Yeah. And you can't, anytime you enter a cheat code and you, you short circuit that process, when you find yourself doing harder and harder things, I'll guarantee you that that thing that you short circuited will be the crux of how you fail eventually. And so don't cheat yourself out of that, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's super interesting. And, and, and I can certainly relate to that. I by no means am a fraction of what you are physically or mentally in terms of what you set your sights on. But like, I, I, I've now run three marathons. Okay. And if you would have talked to me 12 years ago, I would have told you I could never run a marathon. I had no desire to run a marathon. And 
it is all about that preparation. Like I was a, a new mom who hadn't run so much as like a 5K in the last five years. I, you know, was 20 pounds overweight and physical activity was not part of my, my day. And so when I blindly said I was going to run a marathon, it was in a, a state of grief and shock. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll run a marathon. And then when I realized, oh, I have to run a marathon. Um, and I talk a lot about that first day I, I downloaded like Hal Higdon's couch to marathon. And that first day it was run one mile. And so I ran one mile and I'll tell you running that one mile was just as hard as running the half marathon that I ran like four months later, it was just taking that first step. And you, you get to this breakthrough when, when you're involved in preparation, right? Like you, you all of a sudden get to this breakthrough where you can see the other side and you can see if you continue this course, how you're going to get to where you want to be. And so when people come and they're like, well, I would never, you know, we do the marathon, the Marine Corps marathon as a, as a group every year through the Travis Manning foundation. And we get about 300 runners. Um, and, and I'm always trying to get, get new people. I'm like, join our team, run the marathon. Oh no, I could never run a marathon. And it's so hard to articulate and describe. No, anybody can run a marathon. And trust me, I have seen everyone and anyone out on a marathon course. I know I'm sure you've seen the same thing. It does not matter your, you know, what your, your physical attributes are like you can run a marathon. Literally anyone can. It's, it's a mental game as you know, but you do have to prepare. So, you know, this idea of like, can you run a marathon? It's not, can you run a marathon? It's, can you do the work to run a marathon? It's more about that. Um, and so I want to, I want to lead on to something. This perhaps is, I watched a video of you yesterday and it was actually done by our mutual friends, uh, Jonathan and Preston, who are amazing videographers and put the most incredible content together. And they, I shared a week with them, um, just a few months ago, we went to Puerto Rico and they were so awesome. I had the, the best time with them. And so I'm, I'm searching, I'm, I'm looking for information on you and I see this video the hard way. And so I click on the video and right away. I see Jonathan and Preston's names. I'm like, Oh, great. I know this is going to be high quality, great production. And I'm, I'm like totally curious. Okay. What's this video about? And essentially in a nutshell, it's like a 15 minute video of you cutting down a tree and chopping it into wood. And I've never been so inspired by watching someone bring a single axe and and chop down a tree. Um, and one of the things th there was a couple things that you said in that video that I pulled out. You you start off by saying it's, it's about halfway through. You say when things get hard, you start to figure out who you really are. And that's something for me that. I, I couldn't relate to that more. You know, I, I didn't know who I was until I faced adversity in my life until hard things happened to me. And so I can, I can totally relate to that, but I think from more of the, I'm trying to think of the right word, you know, what I kept thinking after, I mean, I got the process. I got what you were trying to do. I, you were, you were trying to do 
hard stuff. You know, you were you were trying to uh, show the process of doing hard things. But I I think that I also watched that video. And while I ended on like, wow, I also ended on like, why didn't you just order some wood and have it delivered? Like what what were you trying to teach yourself in that moment? Yeah, wow. That was a that's a great that was a great video, a uh, great project. Uh, I think super highly of Jonathan, one of my best friends in, in Preston, and they are. You know, I don't have much I don't have much time left to live. Why surround yourself with mediocre people? You know, look to cultivate the greatest people you possibly can, and share time with them with the moments that you have left. And those two are part of that crew. But um, they wanted to produce something that that got into my mind and could capture thoughts when I was facing struggle and adversity and try to crack the code and, and be able to communicate something to other people to help them. And so we brainstormed what I thought a good challenge would be. And it wasn't about picking the task as much as it was like, hey, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Like, oh, I want to push myself to a point where I start to doubt. I want to start to push myself to a point where I start to have that conversation in my mind about quitting again, or why am I doing this? Like, and because uh, I believe that purpose is essential when, when undertaking events or, or challenges and stuff, or if, if, if life jumps on you in a hard way, you trying to figure out what your purpose is so that you can latch onto that to help spirit you through. And um, finding that purpose is really hard. So we decided to do something that would get me to a point where, wow, I'm really second guessing, um, having some doubt, push me to my margin of, and then having to say, hey, do you really believe in what you believe? You know, you, you, you spout off a bunch of stuff and you give people advice about things. Do you really practice it? And for me, that was exciting because I'm fascinated with being an authentic version of myself in everything that I do, consistently authentic, regardless of circumstance. And so we put that together and I, I got there, you know, um, like, man, this is, this is, oh my God, like, you know, we wanted to make sure we could do something in 24 hours. We set the goal of 24 hours and then trying to figure out the tree, like, oh, anybody could pick a small enough tree and then you get it done in 18 hours. Well, then you didn't really have an appreciation for what you were capable of. You know, you underestimated yourself and then you could pick out a tree that was more than you could chew and you get it and you get the 24 hours and you're only halfway done. It's like, oh, you were really overinflated in your self-assessment. So that right there, knowing yourself and what you're capable of. And I believe that we're all capable of so much more than we think we can of ourselves to begin with. So that was a really interesting challenge. And then finding the tree that was far enough away from the house that it wasn't like, hey, I'm just chopping down the tree and then the wood's falling in the backyard that I'd have to move the wood, you know, um, to get it home. So it was, a, it was a very, very physical event, but it was much more emotionally challenging through the execution. So that's what we did. We wanted to go out tackle a task that we designed in order to say, hey, I've got a really good assessment of, my, of ourselves, of myself. And then also something that I would, wouldn't be an easy walk in the park either. And I would have to push and go to that dark place, and wrestle with the mind's mind and self-doubt. So that was that. I, I go back to that video frequently and watch it as a reminder for myself. Um, it's really motivational for me to see. And um, it's a good reminder when I'm getting ready. Like I watched it right before I went and did this this last trail run just to make sure that the, the things that I was talking about, because I really, really believe in what I was talking about in that video. And those guys did a great job of, of editing and parsing information and putting it together to be a good event. Yeah. I love what you, there's some other stuff you talk about in that video. And, and it, I was actually talking to my dad about it uh, yesterday. Um, I'm, I'm telling my husband, I'm like, 
I got to send you this video. It's this video of this Marine and he, and he just, he chops down a tree and he's like, for what? And I'm like, just to, just to test himself, you know? And so I start telling my dad, I'm like, dad, I watched this video. So I'm going to just, just so everybody knows the video, just Google the hard way, Brian Shantosh, or even if you put in Tosh, it'll come up and we can, we'll put the link in too on, on the YouTube. So you guys can see that, but it's just, it's such a, such a well done video. But one of the things you talked about, and I, I brought it up to my dad, you talk about, um, anticipation and expectations in that video. And I love that because I actually said to my dad, I said, we are, we are both guilty of anticipating expectations for something and then being disappointed by the results. Like him and I are kind of famous for that. And my dad actually challenged me back and he said, well, I understand what you're saying, but if you don't have big expectations for something and you don't anticipate big expectations for something like how do you reach those those big goals? You know, and so I bring that back to you as a question, you know, when 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 you think about something and, you know, you take a project you're working on, you know, take take this podcast, for example, like I've got big goals. I've got big goals for what I want this podcast to be. And my expectations are large for the amount of people I want to listen to it, the amount of reach I want it to have. Like if I level set my expectations to make them more realistic so I'm not disappointed by the results, like what does that do? How does that affect the outcome? Yeah, that's hard. That's something that I wrestle with in my life. Um, It's a function of high standards, impeccable standards, um, holding other people maybe sometimes unfairly to these absurd standards, um, product of the background and the experiences in the Marine Corps that I've had, those those really hard times when failure is is devastating, right? Um, Expectation management. Um, not managing others' expectations, but how can you help manage other people's expectations if you can't manage your own? And I constantly set myself up for disappointment because I put these artificial expectations in and, and trying to reconcile what realistic expectations are versus idealistic expectations are. And so I, I like to frame both of those because I think I think reality and ideology are not at odds. Um, they're they're essential because it provides balance. It's the yin and the yang to each other. It's the black to the white. It's the contrast of having those that helps guide us in a trajectory. You set an ideology and that's a North star. We're never really going to reach the North star, but it's going to give us a direction. And then the reality is, is where am I going to get to? And so when I, when I try to, you know, label out or list out expectations that are reasonable, attainable, that are also a little bit challenging where you have to stretch to reach, but then also having an ideology that's way off on the horizon that can help be a steering marker for you. And that's what I do when I'm, when I'm setting these things for myself or events is, is understand that there's two verticals that you have to consider. And it's the one vertical that's going to guide the other. And then the, the set of sense of accomplishment is going to be tied to the realistic vertical. And um, people are able to accomplish so much more than they give themselves credit for. Um, you know that just with what you were talking about with the marathon. Anybody can do a marathon. You know, it's, it's how they go and the milestones that they are willing to touch first along the way before they get to the marathon that are important. So set the marathon as a, as a goal, you know, but then let's create some realistic milestones 
before a marathon that you need to reach, you know, that that isn't just about mileage. That isn't just about hitting a five mile or a 10 mile and then a 20 miler before you hit your marathon. It's emotional milestones, you know, psychological milestones, um, sleep deprivation, things like that, that, that the event is also going to include. Because when you're running that marathon, there's a lot of other things that you can experience other than just mileage. And you have to be aware of those categories and then set goals to be able to accomplish those things on those other parameters more so than just running your mile and or your mileage and so that's how i how i process things that's how i try to set events up for others to show them that um while the sky is not necessarily the limit you can still get there but you have to be touching and reaching these other things before you get to the sky yeah yeah that's it's it's very true um it's funny because I went into this year, this past year, I rocked the Marine Corps Marathon and I went into that experience so differently than I had previously with, um, with the first one that I did. And it was, it was actually enjoyable to me, the training, because I knew kind of, I knew the steps that I had to take to get there. But I also knew it wasn't the same process. I was throwing 20 pounds of weight on my back. And so um, I was excited for that extra challenge for myself uh, to put something else on on my back and, you know, no pun intended, but to to challenge myself even more. But that day showing up on race day was and you hear this a lot. It's like that was the reward for everything I did leading up to that. And um I mean, gosh, it was it was such a great day. And you talk about like weather conditions when we showed up that day. It was torrentially downpouring. And when I when I say torrentially downpouring, literally, there were points um, when I think we went out in Haynes Point, uh, we were running through like six, seven inches of water. And I just kept thinking while, you know, I'm looking to my left and my right and people are so miserable. I was so happy because I was in such a good headspace and I'm like, I'm running in literally the worst conditions that I possibly could compete in this event. So now everyone ahead of these, like every Marine Corps marathon to come is going to be so exciting and nothing's going to be worse than what I'm doing right now. Um, But again, mentally, I was in such a great space and and it is like this mental game that we play with ourselves when we're doing anything, you know, we're talking a lot about physical challenges, but when we're doing anything, this mental game that we play in our heads, that is the most mystifying piece to me for us as, as humans. And some people possess the, the fortitude to push past those barriers. But, you know, you talk about resilience as, as a muscle. And you actually have to like build your resilience. And I love that. I love that concept. I love that idea that in order to be resilient, you have to find ways to be resilient. You have to find ways to build that up with inside yourself. Like we're all going to deal with adversity and challenges, some more than others, right? So if we're blessed to not be someone who's been faced with insurmountable challenges, like maybe we have to actually create those challenges for ourselves, right? We actually have to put challenges in front of our face to, and not just say, Hey, I'm, I'm doing good. I haven't dealt with too much, but we actually have to say, you know what? I'm lucky that I haven't, but I actually have to, I have to challenge myself in some way. I like that. I like that a lot. And, um, that's preparation, right? 
it, uh, you have to practice resiliency. It's not just something that, oh, well, when it's hard out, I'll, I'll just be fine. I'll be okay. I've had too many people tell me I don't need to practice. I don't have to practice being cold and tired and wet. When it happens, I'm tough enough that I'll just be able to muscle through it. And I've actually watched those individuals not succeed because they didn't practice it. And um, that's the that's the thing, you know, you practice it. And this might be a, a weird angle, but it's going to come back. Um, I work with people that are struggling psychologically and, um, you know, contemplating suicide and in and, and, and really, really hard places in depression. And I'm non-clinical, obviously, but um, they tell me how it's almost like I wish I had lost a leg. It's almost like I had wish I had done this or I had some significant adversity in my life because it would give me meaning and purpose and something to challenge myself against. And it would give me direction. I'm like, hey, dude, don't ever, ever wish that. Never wish for that drama to give you identity um, that's not healthy, that's not good. Let's, let's create opportunities to give you struggle in a healthy context and that it'll practice and you'll, you'll be able to develop resiliency and fortitude and, and inner strength and the mindset in the unfortunate event that the world tosses you a curveball. It's don't wish for the curveball. So that's why I like, that's why I like to do these physical events. Um, it pushes me. It, it's it's a healthy outlet to set conditions for me to practice and develop, um, contemplate and build the skill sets that I, in the event, in the eventuality that life is going to crush me someday. I don't want that at all. And so um, it is, it is a muscle resiliency. It's this, um, this unphysical muscle that you need to practice. You need to stress it. It needs to be under tension and you need to struggle. I, I really like what you say, struggle well. How do we learn to struggle well? Because that's, that's just a great way to be succinct and, and just direct with what I ramble on about. And it's, Hey, how do you, I want to struggle well. It's like being okay when things aren't okay or when being okay under situations that are giving you signals and information that suggests that you should probably not be okay, but you're able to just say, Hey, you know, wait, wait a minute, I'm okay. You know, and in um, meditations, Marcus Aurelius some um, talks about that. There's a quote in there that I think about all the time. Um, in it, and it's in the context of when you're when you're facing adversity or, or struggle or challenge. It's like ask yourself this question: like, what is going on for you right now that you cannot be okay? And are you going to be embarrassed by that answer later? And I think about that. And I'm like, yeah. And so when I'm facing a hard thing, it's like, hey, stop, take a deep breath. Like, remind, hey, I'm okay. I'm, I'm actually okay. Things can be a whole lot worse. What is it right now that's going on that's trying to trick me into thinking that I'm not okay or I'm not able to process and manage and, 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 and struggle well through this endeavor and come out the backside even stronger for it? And usually that lifts me up. It gives me something concrete to focus on, attached to, to overcome instead of falling into this quagmire of self-doubt and anxiety or fear or disillusionment or something else or loss of purpose. Um, what is it about this situation right now that is making it so that I cannot be okay? And would I be embarrassed to share that answer? Yeah. No. You said something else in, um, a really cool quote for me. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And you, you said something else and I can't remember if it was in, um, again, I was watching a bunch of there's a there's a bunch of random speeches you've given and all sorts of stuff on YouTube, but it might have been in the hard way video. But you you said something that you're never going to grow if you don't challenge yourself. I'm totally paraphrasing right now. If you don't challenge yourself to be a better 
better version of yourself. And then you said, I hate saying that. And um, I laughed because uh, I always talk about being the best version of yourself. And and I, I often say that my one regret with Travis's passing is that he didn't get to see the person I am today. Like every day I'm striving to be the best version of myself. And and he, in large part, plays a, a really significant role in that. And I love that you you talk about this idea of being the best version of ourselves. And I think we have to constantly look for how we do that as individuals. And are we living our best lives? Are we being the best version of ourselves? And are we being authentic to that process of how we get there? Um, so I think there's so many things that you're saying that are really helpful in, in getting you to that place. And, and it's not like, I love this idea when I was looking and I'm, you know, Tosh was in a container Tosh ran 135 miles. Oh, I just pick up the phone and Tosh actually yesterday just finished 100 miles. Like you've got to start small, but you've got to start like you have to take that first step. So I love that. Um, I want to I want to switch subjects a little bit. And. You've been on a ton of podcasts, you have your own podcast, which I find is so funny. I was listening to it the other day and you're like, I started recording, but, um, but then I had to stop. So now I'm starting again. I, I love how relaxed you are on it. They're fantastic. But one of the things that everyone opens up with, I, I literally could sit here and talk to you about all this stuff all day long, but I, I can't, I can't ignore and not pay homage to your military service. And that's normally where everyone dives right in with you. Like, tell us about your time in the Marine Corps. And um, uh, I totally get that because it's it's very interesting. Um, I've read your citation for your your Navy Cross, and it's incredible. Um, You know, there is always talk from the day that I first met you. there is always talk about your award being upgraded to the Medal of Honor. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was legis- legislation introduced um, for that to happen in the House of Representatives. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. But my question for you is simple. Like, do you want the Medal of Honor? Is that something knowing the responsibility that comes with that? Like, is that something that you're looking to have happen? Yeah, that's tough. Um, It's not a unique question that hasn't been presented to me for the last 10 years or so, I suppose. Um, Maybe I just buy myself a minute here and just say, hey, thank you for not jumping into just some moment of military experience that's most exciting and people really latch onto that first. And that's like the doorway. And tell me about this and that because I feel it's just such a small part of who I am. And I don't ever want to be defined and constrained to just that moment or those few moments that you were recognized for something. I mean, it's the fleeting moments of, of really reacting and surviving. And um, I want to be somebody that's so much bigger than just that. I don't want to sit back and always be the, oh, I was the high school starting quarterback. And I want to be that person for the rest of my life. I've got so much more to give and offer. I want to keep growing. Um, but I also don't want to discount any of those experiences is formative to making me who I am today and who I want to be tomorrow and providing me a backdrop to, to reference and grow from. And, um, 
it's 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 weird. It's it's a double edged sword, right? Um, I, I won't say that I want it. I don't think want is a um, an accurate feeling. Maybe uh, I feel like I've been awarded above and beyond anything already. Anyways, I think there's a whole bunch of men and women that have been underserved in recognition, and I and, you know I, I I wish that everybody, every act, every every act of service regardless of how big or small could be recognized and celebrated by the world, you know? Um, and it just so fun happens that, okay, people want to celebrate this one act And yes, I'm not going to say that it wasn't a significant act and it was pretty wild. Um, I'm not running away from it either. Um, I'm, I'm apprehensive about it because I don't want it to change me. I feel really good about who I am today, where I'm going tomorrow. I want to be down the road. I want to stay rooted and grounded. I want to hold on to humility, kindness, perspective. And I'm concerned that should, should this award be granted, that I'll be pulled and I'll be challenged and tested to stay true and not become somebody who I don't want to be. I've seen it happen to others. And I see the way that people manage that and I, I don't like it and I don't want to be that. I also don't want to be critical of those individuals either because I'm not in their shoes and I could be presented the opportunity to be in their shoes. And so it's, it's not easy. And on the other hand, uh, should the award, uh, obviously I will accept the award, but it's less about accepting the award for myself, for some personal um, accomplishment or, or action. It's, it's more of, the men and the women that I served with it, wearing that award on strong shoulders to represent them and to have it be something that I can use as a platform to communicate all the hard work and the, the sacrifices in, in the service that they gave and haven't received, you know, whether it's adequate recognition or not, or just appreciation. And um, yeah, it's hard. I don't know. I try not to think about it. People, you know, obviously contact me all the time. Oh my God, congratulations. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to be a jerk. And like, say, hey, it's not nothing to congratulate me for. That's why I feel like I don't want to be congratulated for it because it's hard, you know, required to do a lot of horrific things and a lot of horrific things that happen to a lot of people that we've loved. Um, so being congratulated for it or celebrated for it seems weird. But um, I know that that's not the intent by anybody that's saying that. And so, you know, for a lot of years after I retired, I put away everything. And you go to my, you go to my house, there's, there's very little memorabilia around from the military service. You know, one or two things that are exceptionally important to me. Um, but again, it comes from not wanting to be defined and in, in held beholden to the past or an experience to be who I am. I want to move forward. I put all my military awards away, you know, my uniform. I, I finally just dusted off my uniform and I'm putting together a uniform to hang proudly because I've, I've reconciled like, Hey, me putting my uniform in a box in the bottom of my closet and letting it collect dust isn't doing a service to the people that I want to, to represent. And I need to be mature and I need to be strong. I need to have, have strong shoulders and, and bear that burden so that I can 
represent and be something for the rest of the fleet of men and women that are out there, whether who I serve with or are serving today, that they can look forward to and be a positive marker in, in guiding them towards strength and accomplishment, especially as we're these, these super uncertain times today. So I know I rambled a little bit, maybe skirted the question. No, you no, it's it's perfect. And I think, you know, a couple things out of that. Um, and I knew I was just kind of throwing that out. I, I know that's a do you want the Medal of Honor? I did not by no means did I expect you to say, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, I think about all that you do and I love how you say you don't want that one moment to define you. And, but you can't discount, discount the fact that it was an extraordinary moment. Um, again, I told you, I've read the citation. It's, it's pretty incredible what you and your fellow Marines did. What I love even more outside of what that citation reads is when you go back and you read the articles about the men that served underneath you and the way they talk about you. And that for me was just showcased what everything you talk about in terms of leadership and and your style. And I I love that. And I love that the way that they have advocated for you and, and the things that you have done. And I think, you know, listen, I don't think you don't understand that, you know, in the Marine Corps, you're somewhat of a legend. You know, I, I talked to Josh and uh, our, our Josh is the CEO at the Travis Manning Foundation and a mutual friend with with Tosh. And I was talking to T- Josh the other day and, and he said, you know, I'll never forget when we first heard about Tosh. It was like, oh, Tosh, he's legendary. And like everybody knew the story of Tosh. And Josh said, I'll tell you what, when I first met Tosh. I was like, this guy's an asshole. He said, I didn't, I didn't like him. I didn't connect with him. He basically told me, this is what I'm going to do. You do your thing. And Josh was like, well, no, no, no. Like I, I want to do it this way. And he said, and then he said, I'll never forget. He, I guess, again, I'm, I may get the story wrong, but he stayed one night with you. You guys were out on, it was you and Barikian and, and you brought your dog and you were in the field and he said, I'll never forget that night. We stayed up really late talking. And the next day, Mike and I, Barikian, were just mystified by Tosh. Like we were just like, this guy is incredible. The way he leads everything that he does. He said, we, we drank the Tosh Cooley that night and everything that he does and everything that he stands for is just so unbelievable. But I, I, you know, when I see all this stuff and again, you and I that night when we met, we sat next to a senator who talked about the fact that he wanted to get you up or he was a congressman, that he wanted to upgrade your award. That was 10 years ago. And here we are. You've got another congressman who just put forth legislation. And what I think about is knowing all the incredible stuff you do. And before we sign off, I just want to touch on some of the stuff at your ranch. But thinking about that and then the responsibility that taking on what that award means and, and, and how that inevitably will change your life and will change some of the work you're doing. Um, I 100% think you're up to the task. I just, I wondered how you were, you've got to go to bed some nights just thinking about that and, and thinking about what that will look like as much as you don't know what the future may bring. Certainly you have to think about that to some degree. Yeah. i, I tell you, <clears throat> I wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have been mature enough to receive this award 10, 15 years ago. And so I'm fortunate that it wasn't presented back then, let alone whether it was deserved or not, doesn't, isn't the question. Um, 
but I wouldn't feel like I would have been mature, wise. And it's like I've spent the last 15 years trying to grow as a human being and, you know, be able to, to bear the shoulders that'll, that'll, or have the shoulders that'll bear the weight, you know? Um, so I, I am looking at that as well. And it, it's a part of me staying grounded and understanding the awesome responsibility that also comes with something like this. Um, but yeah, I've been told that I'm kind of like whiskey. Nobody likes whiskey when they, strong whiskey, when they first take a sip of it, it's a acquired taste. You've got to water it down a little while. Maybe put a, put a chaser in it and, and then slowly over time, it's like, oh, wow, I really like the whiskey, just the whiskey. And that's how I've been explained to by others. Um, I like that. And uh I am hard. I am hard, but uh, I've grown a lot. I think I'm. I think I'm a good. I'm a much better person today than I was a long time ago, and I look forward to just trying to be better. I don't want to ever. I don't want to be known by my resume or my accomplishments. I want to be known and recognize who I am. I'm reading a book. I'm actually studying this book. It's How Will You Measure Your Life, and um, by Christensen, and um, it, it's really got me thinking a lot. Like, how will you measure your life? by listing out a bunch of accomplishments, you know, I've done this, 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 and this, and I've been awarded for this. It's like, yeah, that's not what I want to be. That's not how I want to be measured. You know, I want other people to talk about me and then not say, oh, well, he did this or he did that, but like, oh, wow, he's this kind of person, or this is the way he treats others, or this is who he is as a human being. And that's how I'd like to be measured. And that's how I look at other people as well. You know, their, their accomplishments are mildly interesting compared to how they, how they act with the world around them and what they do and what they give. Yeah. So I'm trying to hold on to that. Yeah. And I think it's about, you know, you talk, talk a little bit about it's, it's the act of how you make other people feel. And that kind of dives in a little bit to the last thing I want to talk with you about is the work that we do together through the Travis Manning Foundation and Crooked Butterfly Ranch in Colorado, where you are right now. And we came together and partnered four years ago to bring veterans and family members of fallen service members to your ranch for you to essentially push them out of their comfort zone and take on some of the challenges in a smaller fashion that you've taken on yourself. And talk to me a little bit about this work and why this work is important for you. And I'll tell you, I have not been on any of these expeditions. I'm actually slated to come out in October with our group of 20 veterans that was uh, postponed due to COVID. So I'll be out there in October. I'm so excited. But there has literally not been from the veterans that come back to the staff from the Travis Manning Foundation that go there in support, they come back transformed. So there's there's something magical happening at Crooked Butterfly Ranch where you are literally changing people's lives in one week. Um, and not only what are you doing, but why is it so important for you to be doing this work? That's super kind and super generous of you to, uh, to say that. And I appreciate it. Um, you have to have experiences. Experiences are what give you a backdrop to be able to frame who you are and why you are the way you are and give you a roadmap to improving that if you're willing to do that. And so that's what I like to do is I like to provide an experience that's a little bit uncomfortable, take people out of the comfort zone. Um, and I found that something that I didn't do very well, or maybe it was appropriate at the time, but then maybe I was late in transitioning was showing vulnerability. And so I like to start out these expeditions with 
sharing my vulnerability and just being open and honest. If you can't have honest dialogue with others and yourself, then how are you expected to grow? You know, you're fooling yourself, then you're always going to be blind to where you need to go in order to be better. So really we start off with that and just, I open up and allow myself to be honest and exceptionally vulnerable and it's uh, therapeutic. It helps me. It's selfish. What I do for, for the Travis Meany Foundation is purely selfish, you could even argue, because it helps me. And then it welcomes others to start sharing and, you know, remove some obstacles and some barriers. And then we can start to explore objectively, subjectively of, of things that are holding us back or, or whatnot in our lives and where we can go. And um, it creates a it fosters this um, community with you, with each other, that kinship that we talked about back in the very, very beginning. You know, you said, is there places outside of the military that we can say, well, yeah, here's one right here, this, this expedition, you know, we are setting the foundation for that kinship and um, by doing these things. And um, it's, I love it. It's, it's become, you know, I retired and I really just turned off the military. I just removed myself from it. And it wasn't that I was embarrassed of it or not proud or anything like that. It just was I needed time to process who I was. And all the advice people give you is you need to have a purpose. You need to have a job. You need to get your resume. You need to get the next new task. You need to go, go, go. And I didn't agree with that. I felt that my transition for the military was just that. It was a process that needed to be experienced and not rushed through, not an obstacle that needed to be conquered. It was something that needed to be endured. And I did that for a few years, four or five years. Um... And now I'm finding a sense of purpose in communicating with veterans and trying to, like the Travis Mann and like you, like you guys do at your foundation, is leverage quality characteristics that veterans have and have, have grown and have been given through their service. And how do we impart that into America's youth to, to give them an edge, to give them something to latch on to, to overcome the things that they're facing in life, to be bigger, to be better, to struggle well um, and set out on a path of purpose. Um, And so that's what we try to do up here is um, tap into some of those characteristics and traits or the things that make the the veterans that come to the expedition tick that are positives and understand what those positives are and mean, how they manifest, how they're communicated. And then how can we impart them on um, in in the Travis Manion Foundation's um, specifics to to America's youth? And um, we find that it's beneficial to both parties, both the youth, but also it, it serves the veterans really, really well because it invigorates them with a, a newfound um, interest in continuing to cultivate their positive character values and, and grow. Well, it's working. Um, we're, we're slated to do our fourth year with you here. And uh, again, you know, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke. It, it is by far um, the most impactful thing that we have our veterans talk about each and every year is the the time they spend um, in the week there with you. So um, I'm looking forward to being out there in October. Um, all right. I well, actually talked to Josh on the side and I have a sleeping bag for you and an extra pair of boots. I've got all the stuff. You think you're only coming for a day or two, but you're actually going to spend the entire week and you don't know it yet. Listen, so. I'm, I'm down with spending the whole week. That was like pre COVID when I was coming in for a couple of days, there was a lot of travel involved. The idea of spending a week in Colorado with a bunch of people doing some hard stuff. Like I'm, I'm all in. So, uh, right, I'll, right. I'll be there for the week. Yes, for sure. All right. Tosh, I want to thank you so much for um, joining us here today, spending time with us. And I mean, there's so many sound bites that we're going to pull from this because you just gave such incredible insight into 
leadership and resilience and, and this whole idea of how you challenge yourself. But I want to close today with the same question that we ask every one of our guests. And, and that is, what does living a resilient life look like for you? Yeah, what is what is a resilient life look like for me? And that's tough. That's a tough question because you want to go big and you want something profound and everybody wants a sexy answer. But um, I think I think resilience is you build resilience when your character is faced with an opportunity to be less than you would be proud of in any given circumstance or minute that you would you would look back on like, oh, man, I could have could have done a little better. And so living a resilient life is resisting those opportunities to let yourself down, let your character down and um, being aware of that. And, you know, we talked about before how I don't like to say be the best possible version of yourself because it's kind of cliche. It's kind of daunting to be the best version of yourself. But living a resilient life is, is really, for me, is, it's really simple. It's a tagline for Crooked Butterfly Ranch and it's just suck less. And if I just tell you to, hey, in this opportunity, in this moment, in this, this passing fleeting moment right now, all you have to do is just suck a little bit less than you did yesterday or that you, than you are tempted to right now in the moment. And that'll help you just rise to the occasion and, and do a little bit more. And that way it's not as big and as daunting. You just have to just, just suck a little less. That's it. It's that easy. And so living a resilient life is sucking less today than I did yesterday. I love that. So I am um, uh... My advice for everyone is to go out there tomorrow and and suck less tomorrow than you did today. I love that. And yeah. and I will take that. I like things that are short and quippy. I can I can digest that. So I, I'm going to use that one from now on. Suck less. Tosh, thank sure. you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing you um, coming up here in a few months. Suck less, everybody. That's the message that Marine veteran and Navy Cross recipient Brian Shantosh is leaving us with. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Resilient Life Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share with your friends and family. We'll be dropping new episodes every Tuesday, and we have a great guest lineup coming your way. You can also find me on Instagram at rmanion, so drop me a line if you like what you're hearing so far. See you next time on the Resilient Life Podcast.